A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Hey guys, this is Jesse. Just a reminder that I am crossing Canada on a book tour performing material from the Canada Land Guide to Canada, which by the way is the number one nonfiction Canadian book in Canada. And yes, we edged out Neil deGrasse Tyson. Thank you, everybody. We are having a lot of fun at these shows. Thank you to the hundreds of people who've shown up. Toronto, Vancouver, Victoria, Calgary, Saskatoon. Tonight, Monday, I will be performing in Edmonton. After that, it is Winnipeg, then Montreal, Hamilton, London, and Kingston. There are still tickets available to those shows at canadalandshow.com slash book tour. I will be signing books after each performance, and I'm looking forward to meeting a lot of you. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by HelloFresh, the meal kit service dedicated to making cooking fun, easy, and convenient. For 50% off of your first HelloFresh box, visit hellofresh.ca slash canadaland and use the promo code Canada Land when you subscribe. Guys, Omar Mwalam is filling in while I'm on the road, and you'll hear from him in a minute. What you just heard there was gangster rap. The first song by Ontario's Heartless G and the second by Savage Like JR, those were submitted by the Crown as criminal evidence to convict the artists. And one of them, in fact, was included. 
Oh, and that third song, that's Rick Ross's Drug Dealer's Dream from the album Mastermind. It debuted at number one on the Billboard 200 chart. When it comes to rap, where does the art end and the autobiography begin? According to prosecutors in at least 30 cases from the last decade, it begins when the artist is charged with a crime. And that's when the process of parsing the lyrics for clues to a case or for evidence of bad character begins. The findings are laid out in a paper by University of Windsor researcher David Tinovich called R.V. Campbell, Rethinking the Admissibility of Rap Lyrics in Criminal Cases. The report points to a racist justice system tapping into the unconscious biases of judges and jurors with the fate of young black and indigenous men in their hands. Many of these defendants are convicted of their crimes. But should their music, their artistic expression, be one of the tools we use to do that? Look, the criminalization of rap music isn't anything new. Two Live Crew, Ice-T, and N.W.A. all faced legal battles in the 90s because of the content of their music, viewed as obscene or dangerously influential. But those groups had high-priced entertainment lawyers. Now prosecutors are going after underground rappers who might have to rely on public attorneys. And more importantly, rappers whose music is supposedly probative of a crime outside of the recording studio. Okay, there are other cases, though few, outside of rap where art is used to convict the accused. In Edmonton, the most sensational in recent memory included the supposedly fictional writings of Mark Twitchell, which bore a striking resemblance to a certain murder scene. Or, to borrow an example from the art world in England, the works of painter Graham Ovenden were recently ordered to be destroyed when it was learned that the new child subjects of his paintings were sexually abused. But when it comes to rap, it happens so frequently that researchers actually have no idea how many examples there are. To try to find out why and what this means for racial profiling and artistic expression, we've brought together three experts. Adam Dunbar, a University of California Irvine criminologist. He's doing experiments into the unconscious biases of genre labeling, and he joins us from California. There's sociologist Ju Young Lee from the University of Toronto, an expert witness and author of Blowing Up, Rap Dreams in South Central. And also in Toronto, Hilary Dudding, the defense attorney in the case of Orville Campbell, a.k.a. Savage Like JR, which could set a precedent for future courts. We'll talk with them in a minute. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Justin Penny, Zoe Roberts, Allison O'Reilly, Raphael titsworth Morin, Robert Martin, Joanne Landry, Ed Dagsan, and Olivia White. Olivia, why did you decide to be awesome? I support Canada Land because it helps me stay informed and connected with what's going on in our country when I'm living or traveling abroad. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash canadaland to help CAMH treat addiction, and build hope. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. 
And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool, doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer. And it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. This episode is also brought to you by HelloFresh, the meal kit service dedicated to making cooking fun, easy, and convenient. I love cooking this time of year. I love it because there are finally fresh, seasonable ingredients. I do not love shopping. I do not love meal planning. I do not love waiting in line at the supermarket. I do not love the stress of all of that. HelloFresh takes care of that for you. They do the meal planning. They do the shopping. They send you a box with meals ready to cook, easy, simple to follow recipes. And there's no waste because they give you exactly enough ingredients for what you're going to cook and no more and no less. The portions are generous. They have different plans. If you live alone, if you have a partner, if you've got kids, you still get to cook with locally sourced fresh ingredients. All of it is delivered to your doorstop in an insulated box. I also like HelloFresh because it takes you out of your cooking routine and it gets you cooking things that you otherwise might not have cooked and all of their recipes are tested in-house. I've seen their kitchen laboratory. They rigorously test this stuff and all of their recipes, which just work and taste very good, they're all done in 30 minutes or less. Get 50% off of your first box. Visit HelloFresh.ca slash CanadaLand and enter the promo code CanadaLand when you subscribe. This episode is also brought to you by Amnesty International Canada. Whether Amnesty is documenting human rights abuses abroad, campaigning for the rights of Indigenous people in Canada, or mobilizing thousands of supporters to free political prisoners, Amnesty International has been a leading voice for the protection of human rights for over 50 years. And right now, Amnesty is mobilizing against the brutal persecution of gay men in Chechnya. Despite a recent report that over 100 men suspected of being gay have been abducted, tortured, and even killed, authorities in Chechnya won't even admit that gay men exist in their society. Well, Amnesty International has launched an urgent call to protect the LGBTI community in Chechnya from this kind of hate and violence, and you can help them. Go to amnesty.ca slash CanadaLand and take action. Finally, guys, this show is brought to you by our founding sponsor, FreshBooks, small business accounting software that makes billing painless. FreshBooks is super simple and intuitive. You will spend less time on paperwork and you will wow your clients with how professional you look. There's an interesting article in Forbes about the entire rethink redesign of FreshBooks and how they reimagined their product and improved it. It is the cloud accounting solution for entrepreneurs, freelancers, and small businesses. Makes life easier. Makes you look good. Your invoice is going to be seen by the people you work for. It matters how it looks, and it affects how quickly you get paid. Try out FreshBooks for free for 30 days. No credit card required. Go to freshbooks.com slash CanadaLand. Give it a whirl. If you become a customer, tell them that CanadaLand sent you. You will be doing the show a favor. Thank you, FreshBooks. Adam Dunbar, Ju Young Lee, and Hilary Dudding, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. I want to start with you, Adam. How did your research into this trend begin, and, and what are you learning? Yeah, so my research actually started when I first heard a talk about this practice. It was um, a law professor, a criminologist, 
um, and a professor from the humanities talking about this practice of using rap lyrics as evidence. And it was really interesting to, to think about the, the legal impl- implications, how culture is criminalized. And then for me, kind of how stereotypes about rap music might influence how these lyrics are interpreted. Um, and so the, that started then a set of experiments to kind of get at that that question. Now, I want to talk about some of those experiments later, but you've looked at a lot of cases, mostly in the United States. What are some of the more surprising examples of rap being used as evidence, rap being put on trial? A lot of cases where the the slang that's used in, in rap is is vague and it's general. It's not speaking to a specific incident or instance. And so it's kind of surprising that it's used as evidence. But I think there's one notable case in California where a man was being charged with a conspiracy to commit murder. And one of the types of ed- evidence that was used were not just his lyrics, but also the cover for his rap album. Um, the cover is this uh, revolver with gun shells and then also has the title No Safety, which could be interpreted as... Um, a reference to shooting his gun, but could also talk about the conditions in his community, right? There not being a lot of safety. And so I think that was one of, that's one of those cases where it is a stretch to consider his, his album cover and his lyrics um, proof that he had this conspiracy to commit murder. As you describe it, it sounds to me like just a, a very average rap album cover. Yeah. Ju Young, have you seen some instances that have also baffled you? Yeah, I mean, this has become a growing trend in, I guess, U.S. and in Canada, where hip-hop has kind of come under this intense scrutiny in the justice system as if it's part of a rapper's autobiography. My my first experience, I guess, working specifically on these matters was here in Toronto with the case that I guess Hillary's going to talk about later. But um, yeah, I mean, this is this is a growing trend and it's it's something that we see happening more and more. There are a few rare examples in Canada during the 90s, but the frequency of use is, is a modern trend. Before Orville Campbell's case, Hillary, you'd represented a few defendants slash underground rappers on trial. When did you start noticing the change? I think it probably started when people started putting videos on the internet more and more. So I think those two things are keyed up. I recall there was a time I didn't, this wasn't my client, but somebody my firm represented. I remember there was a video that the police had purchased from a corner store on a disc. And that was one of the first examples I can think of. It probably happened around 2006 or 2007. But really this exploded when people started putting videos on websites and YouTube and torontorappers.com. Right. So the Toronto police are actually known to monitor torontorappers.com. Tell me about that. Oh, they absolutely watch torontorappers.com. And, you know, it's not at all uncommon for uh, the police to check up and follow along and see what's going on with people that they know are in trouble or to watch and monitor people's connections to each other and see who's appearing in videos. I know I've had situations where I've been asking the police, for example, to lighten up somebody's bail condition, and I've had the response back from the prosecutor, no, we've seen him in a video recently, so we don't think he's complying. Sorry. So, you know, there's no doubt in my mind that the police are watching and 
are prepared to use this information as a law enforcement tool if they think that that there's something there to look at. Now, there are instances where the music has helped with a conviction. There's a there's a very tragic case of Mark Moore, a Toronto man who killed four people in a span of a few months for no reason than to prove he had street cred as a rapper, or so the judgment said. This is pretty unusual, though. A more typical example is one like your clients. Hillary, can you tell me about Orville Campbell's trial? Well, the prosecution, I mean, Orville is a rapper and had a couple of different videos that he had released that were out there. And in Orville's case, when he was charged with, he was charged with first, well, he's charged with second degree murder and eventually went to trial on first degree murder that, you know, caused the police to be really looking carefully at at his videos. And ultimately, when we came to the trial, the police or the Crown was seeking to tender them for two reasons. Really, the main reason was that it was their contention that one of the raps contained a direct confession to the murder. But they were also seeking to use the videos for a broader purpose to demonstrate that he was a gang member. Right. And ultimately, they weren't prepared to to allow either of those. But there were sort of two reasons that they were trying to use that. And Ju Young was very helpful for me in terms of understanding the issue and framing it for the judge. So they didn't just want to play the song, but the video. What would the jury see? if they did play the video and what do you think that would do to their judgment well i mean the video the video has orville and a couple of the other rappers set up in various scenes you know driving in a car smoking joints mugging people yeah mugging there's a feigned mugging for a chain there's another scene where they're sitting in a sort of a dining room covered in stacks of money and jewelry so and- in other words it's a rap video in other words, it's a rap video. Yeah. What, what do you think that could have done to their judgment? The concern is that when a jury member is assessing evidence in a case, especially a case where somebody's died, and there's already sort of a feeling that out there that someone needs to be responsible for this, that these kinds of images are going to tap right into all kinds of prejudice and stereotype that exist about black men in crime. My concern is always it can happen on a on a conscious level. Somebody saying, well, that guy's just a criminal and, you know, therefore we're not going to be too worried about whether the evidence really proves him guilty. But there's all kinds of subconscious levels that these things happen at, and that's pretty well known. And so the concern is that people may not even be aware that they're importing these kinds of beliefs and attitudes about young men, especially black young men, and the likelihood that they're committing crimes. And so the concern is that the jury is not going to be as critical as they should be of the prosecution's case or just blow this person off and say, well, this is a bad guy. So, you know, who, who's who's too worried about it if he goes to jail? So there's that aspect of it, but there's also... The lyrics themselves, the Crown wanted to rely on them as evidence, even though there were 30 witnesses to the crime. We heard the song at the top of the show, but the exact lyrics were, Nah, I ain't slipping with my wifey, never. One shot, leave your brains on your Nikes. Broad day anywhere. One shot, make you flip like gymnastics. This, to any listener, sounds like kind of -of run-of-the-mill rap music. Why were these lyrics in particular significant? The 
Crown's theory was that the motive behind the shooting of the gentleman who was shot was that he had become involved with Orville's girlfriend sort of behind Orville's back and had sort of taken her from him and that he was angry about this and that was the reason why this man was shot. That's the reason why the word wifey is significant. That's exactly right. So the Crown's contention was that this was a, a, a essentially a confession that the lyric, yo, I ain't slipping with my wifey, meant literally things aren't falling apart between myself and my wife. That's where sort of the rubber hit the road, so to speak, in the confession, because that was specific enough that if a jury member was persuaded that he was saying, watch, things aren't falling apart with me and my wife, one shot, make you flip like gymnastics, I'm going to shoot you for doing that, then that would be specific enough to be a confession. Was the victim also wearing Nikes? Was that a part of it? He was. Yes, he was. Yeah, and that was certainly part of the Crown's argument. Ju Young, you were brought in as an expert witness for this case. What was your presentation? Well, uh, my role was to write a report that helped contextualize hip-hop for uh, people in the court and the judge in particular. And, you know, my report basically talked about the rise of hip-hop culture and how young people use hip-hop culture as a way out of bad circumstances or as a pathway to upward mobility. Um, my report also talked about the various references that rappers use to their guns and why there is such a cultural premium placed on talking about being uh, armed or packing heat. And so I, I help kind of contextualize that as part of what sociologists like to talk about as the code of the street. And so one one of the synonyms for a gun would be the feminizing wifey. Yeah. And so, you know, one of the most classic examples of that is Tupac's song, Me and My Girlfriend. It's a song where he personifies his weapon as his girlfriend. And it, it kind of works as a double entendre because he's simultaneously talking about what sounds like a romantic relationship, but then if you read between the lines, he's also talking about a weapon that is loyal to him that he can rely upon when uh, he's in a bad situation. Um, And this is something that's very common in many different songs. You know, 50 Cent also talks about his gun. He has a song on a G-Unit record called My Buddy, and the gun becomes a loyal friend that he carries with him everywhere he goes. So... I think to the outside listener, some of that nuance is lost when they just see the word wifey and they assume that in this case, uh, Campbell was talking about his wife or a romantic partner and not not seeing that, you know, this is a very common thing that artists do when they talk about uh, weapons. This strikes me as a, a little bit odd. You You actually went there to explain that the, the Crown was trying to explain that wifey meant an, an innocent person, and you were trying to say, no, 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 the, the defendant is talking about a dangerous weapon here. Yeah, that's essentially, I think, what a lot of the case kind of came down to. And I think that the broader point is really that, you know, when we interpret hip-hop lyrics, um, we have to understand the culture itself. We have to understand the history of why young black men in particular are talking about doing violence or becoming violent. We have to look at a larger industry that even incentivizes uh, this identity and this kind of presentation of self as a thug or a gangster. And so I think that it's too ambiguous to just say that if a person is talking about a girlfriend or a wifey 
or a buddy that they're actually talking about a real person in particular because there are so many examples of rappers talking about their guns. And so that was kind of the the gist of it, I guess. It seems obvious why a rapper would want to portray themselves as more violent or misogynistic than the next guy because that is the whole commercialization of the genre. Rick Ross, who we heard at the beginning, was actually a former prison guard, not a drug dealer. Right. At the, at the same time, there's a tradition of autobiography, of naming real people, referencing real homicides in the community. Nas and Kendrick Lamar do this all the time. Can you explain the complexity as, as you would to the court and why this could make it difficult for a court to believe in the artistic merit of a rap persona and, and really understand the commercial value of blending fact and fiction? Yeah, I mean, so hip-hop is a genre where artists will commonly slide between first-person autobiography and kind of folklore, where they'll draw from stories that they hear in the neighborhood or that they grew up witnessing or learning about through their friends or family members. And one of the telltale signs is when an artist makes specific references to places and times and they use specific names of people. That's different than, for example, talking about violence in general or claiming to shoot somebody or making threats, like saying, like, if you uh, try to front on me, I'm going to smoke you, right? So there's, there's subtle differences in how, I guess, authentic people are being when they're talking about violence. And it's hard sometimes, I think, for outsiders to appreciate these subtleties because it all sounds like it's coming from a first-person narrative, but uh, the rapper is, in fact, sort of blending stuff that they've been through with fictitious references. And Kendrick Lamar, for example, on Good Kid, Mad City, on the song Mad City with MC8, in the first verse, talks extensively about personal experiences and names people who he's seen uh, shot and killed. And in the fourth verse, he comes in and says, if I told you that I killed someone at 16, would you believe me? And I read that and I hear that as like a satirical reference to, or as a a satire, as, as him saying that so many rappers in this game are talking about killing people and shooting people. And much of that song is really about him growing up in a context where he's seeing this stuff and he's reporting on it. So he's thinking of himself like a reporter. But there is a real incentive for young people who are trying to make it to portray that image. And that's something that, you know, I studied in Los Angeles with young men who were interacting with A&Rs who would tell them, you know, you're you're a really talented MC and rapper, but can you rap about uh, guns and drugs and, and put on that identity more? You're not hard enough. Exactly. Now, you, you laid this out before the judge, Justice Ian Nordenheimer. He had, at least in one case before, allowed rap music as evidence. In the conviction of Lamar Skeet, a.k.a. Ammo, in that case, Skeet rapped a song from the infamous Don Jail outside Toronto about the conditions of the prison. This is what that sounded like. Yo, I said, yo, keep my distance because I see it in his eyes. That nigga slithery, playing like he blessed with me. Really, he wants to get at me. Just waiting for the right moment, but I got my eyes on him. It's as cold as blizzard storms through the night shifts in the danger zone. Left to your own devices. Fear no man if it's wind. No long talking, just a pound and I keep it moving. Push it to the limit, trying to build up my muscles. Gotta keep my body solid in case I get in a tussle. In this place that I'm living in, it's dark than a mofo but I can see the light at the end of the tunnel yo ahead of my time 
So this, again, aside from the peculiar telephone recording, it sounds on the surface like a very average rap song. Hillary, how did you distinguish Campbell's case from Lamar Skeet's case? You know, with some difficulty, I think one of the essential differences between Skeet and Campbell's case was having the context that Ju Young helped me to provide to the judge about the issues he was just raising. You know, being able to really explain in a very clear way what the potential for prejudice was and why the conventions of rap make it very difficult to look at rap autobiographically really, really helped me to to do that work. And I think the other thing in the Skeet case is that there's a portion of the rap in the Skeet case that pertained to retaliation for a relatively specific homicide, and that was the theory of the Crown in the Skeet case. So say that you're not going to allow this kind of material to come in unless you see a really, really strong factual nexus between the details of the rap song and the facts of your case. You know, I think that you could probably differentiate Skeet from Campbell in that way. And that was the language I was I was trying to ask Justice Nordheimer to apply and which ultimately he sort of adopted was this test that there be a very strong factual nexus between the facts of the song in order to outweigh a lot of the prejudicial effect that comes from tapping into all of this bad character evidence and the themes of uh, violence and all of that. So to boil it down, it would be Ju Young and the fact that in Campbell's case, unless you accepted that wifey meant a girlfriend, we were really talking about general bad acts. And in Skeet's case, there was more teeth to the issue of Skeet actually talking about being in jail because of a particular retaliation. The other interesting thing about Skeet to add, though, is that a lot of what Skeet was rapping about in his track had to do with social criticism of the conditions of the Dawn Jail, when really it was the conditions there were absolutely terrible and it's now shut down. And I, if I'm not mistaken, I think Justice Nordheimer talked about the fact that unlike other kinds of songs where the song itself is based on drug dealing or other kinds of criminal activity, Skeet was being sort of doing a socially positive act in his rapping and that that balanced out some of the prejudicial impact. Rightly or wrongly, that was his ruling. So so this was all laid out for Justice Nordheimer. Hillary, what was his response about the music? Justice Nordheimer ruled that the prosecution wasn't going to be allowed to play Orville's video for the jury or rely on any of the things that he said in his rap lyrics, because basically he wasn't persuaded that the uh, lyrics were close enough to the facts of the case that anybody could say that they were a confession. But it wasn't just that. He went on to say, and I'm going to read here right from his judgment, the mere fact that an artist records a rap with lyrics that refers to such activities, and here he's talking about the subject matter of drugs, guns, and shootings, he says, that cannot be taken as an admission by the artist that they were involved in such activities, even where the lyrics are used in the first person. While this is true for music as a whole, it is particularly the case with gangster rap. But he acknowledged not only did he not find it persuasive that Orville was actually talking about this case at all, 
he also acknowledged that generally speaking, you know, we can't just presume that because somebody is rapping about something, it must be autobiographical. Do you think this will have a relevance for future cases? Yeah, I think it is a case that's going to get looked at. But I think the issue is going to come up with increasing frequency as years go on. And I, I think that's partially true just because there's so much more information and material out there and more and more people are publicizing their rap and putting things out there that I think that the courts are going to have to come up with a unified direction on how to handle this issue. And we haven't seen the last of this issue, that's for sure. Let's come back to the racial implications here, because one would, I think, have to be very naive to think rap isn't racially charged and that this isn't a direct line into the into popular society's unconscious prejudices. Even if there is probative value in the music or video, it also creates cultural cues about what I think at the back of our minds we might assume about young black and indigenous men. Ju Young, you've said this isn't anything new. Why? Because this is something that goes back to slavery. It goes back to, you know, an industry that is promoting these images of black masculinity. It's part of how we've been talking about police violence against black and indigenous indigenous men, both in the U.S. and in Canada. And we see time and time again that young men of color are perceived by society at large as being violent and dangerous. And, you know, there's eerie parallels to the kinds of testimony that Officer Darren Wilson gave when he shot and killed an unarmed Michael Brown, where he talked about Michael Brown as if he was a demon or he was pumping his chest up and running through a, a hail of bullets. He compared fighting or wrestling with him, like feeling like a child fighting with Hulk Hogan. You know, so all of this language, all of this kind of imagery, it's, uh, you know, that's part of this racist narrative that black men are scary, they're violent, and they need to be controlled. And so I think that, you know, this debate that people are having about hip-hop's admissibility into courts is kind of an extension of this longer racist caricature of violent black men. Is there also a, a double standard when it comes to defendants who are white? Most people won't remember this, but in the Paul Bernardo case, one of the many bizarre details of the serial killer's case was that he was an aspiring rapper and that his songs or lyrics from his music were actually attempted to be submitted by the Crown as evidence. But in that case, it was dismissed. It's It certainly is an interesting fact that for, you know, when I sat down to really look at this issue hard for Campbell, one of the things that came up is that the only precedents I could find in Canada for rap being excluded involved two rappers who were white. In every other instance, the uh, material was included. Um, and so it is a, a very interesting thing to note that. Uh, it's so important that if rap is going to be included in a criminal trial, that defense lawyers look at ensuring that there's somebody there to give some expert opinion, someone like Ju Young, or there's other kinds of people who might be qualified to give these kinds of opinion that come to mind. But we need to have somebody there to create the context for the music so that jurors, we can't presume that they understand the sociocultural underpinnings of the music. We can't presume that they understand that the words 
are easily translatable. And it's I think that's really an important takeaway that if there is going to be admission, if it is decided that the evidence is probative enough to be included, that there be something there to temper some of the conclusions that people might draw about the material. And I think, you know, a failure to do that is very, very dangerous. The other thing I'd add to that is that the police are routinely called by the prosecution to give evidence about the meanings of words, sometimes in rap songs, but often in, you know, phone calls or other intercepted material. Sometimes, you know, I can imagine in a a situation where the judge had decided that Orville Campbell's rap should be admitted, they probably would have had a police officer testifying as to what he suggested the words meant, and I would have had to call Ju Young to uh, provide the context and his expert opinion on what the word meant, and we would have had a sort of dueling expert situation, which isn't ideal either. But I do think that if this music is going to be admitted, the truth-seeking function of the trial uh, really can be damaged unless there's somebody there to provide this information, and it's, it's not the kind of material that is going to make its way before the court in any other way other than calling an expert. Let's talk about what what's actually happening when this material is included. Um, Adam, you've actually conducted multiple studies on what you call genre labeling. Tell me about the work that you're doing at UCI. Yeah, so we've raised this really interesting point today about how difficult it is to understand the value and discern the value of, of rap lyrics. But there's also a, a second question that I look at, and that's, how might the value of, lack of of rap lyrics be inflated because of stereotypes related to rap music? And so I've actually conducted with, uh, a few experiments with colleagues at UCI looking at how the rap label, the genre label, affects how people evaluate violent lyrics. So, for example, for uh, one experiment had participants all read a set of lyrics. Actually, everybody read lyrics. It was uh, from a folk song. They didn't know it was a folk song. They either learned rap or country. And then they were asked to evaluate those lyrics across a number of different items. So, for example, how offensive were the lyrics? How threatening are the lyrics? And I think importantly, how autobiographical are the lyrics? And results from this one experiment showed, or actually that we replicated, it showed that participants who learned that the lyrics were, were rap music were more likely to evaluate those lyrics as offensive, as threatening, um, and as literal than participants who learned that those same lyrics were categorized as country. And those lyrics in the end were from a folk song, Kingston Trio's Bad Man's Blunder, which sounds like this. Well, early one evening I was rolling around. I was feeling kind of mean. I shot the deputy down. Strolling on the home and I went to bed. Well, I laid my pistol up under my head. He strolled along the home. I took my time And he went to bed Thought I'd sleep some Laid his pistol Big 22 Up under his head I keep it handy And Adam, you've, you've run other studies as well about how this music, how this genre can create inferences about a person's character. Tell me about that. Yeah, so in another experiment, uh, participants were also instructed to read a set of, of violent lyrics um, but in this in this experiment, rather than have participants learn that the, that the lyrics are either country or rap, participants in this study learned that they were either the lyrics were from a country song, a rap song, a punk song, or a heavy metal song. Because some people think that okay, well maybe country isn't a fair comparison, right? Heavy metal is also seen as more violent, 
And so it's important to use that as a comparison group. So after reading these, these lyrics, which again were the lyrics from the 1960s folk song, Bad Man's Blunder, participants evaluated the songwriter across a number of different dimensions, uh, specifically focusing on personality and on criminal involvement. So participants evaluated things like the, the honesty, the sociability, the aggressiveness, the, the intelligence of the songwriter. They also evaluated whether the songwriter was in a gang, whether the songwriter had been previously arrested for a crime, and whether the songwriter had been previously convicted of a crime. And so what the results showed, I think, really interesting, it was participants in the rap and heavy metal condition evaluated the songwriter much more negatively in terms of character than participants in the punk and country condition. So at this point, maybe it seems like there's something going on that's not specific to rap. Maybe it's something about genres that are traditionally viewed as violent. But when we right, look... It doesn't seem at first like there's a color divide. Yeah, yeah. Which so Because right, this idea of using rap lyrics has this racial connotation. But just looking at character items raises some questions about that. However, when we look at the effect of genre on items related to criminal involvement, right, we see a unique effect for rap music, whereas participants in the rap condition thinking that it was more likely the, the songwriter was in a gang, more likely the songwriter had committed a crime in the past, and more likely that the songwriter had been convicted of a crime in the past, compared to participants who learned that the lyrics were either country, punk, or heavy metal. And I think this is really important to bring up when we consider how jurors might be using these rap lyrics, right? If jurors are potentially making inferences that they're, that they're not supposed to make, or inferences that might lead them to think the defendant is the type of person who would commit a crime. Hillary, as a, as a defense lawyer, it is your job to screen for racial uh, prejudices, all prejudices within a, within a jury. What do you take away from the work that Adam is doing? I think it's fascinating and chilling, actually, to discover that there's such a marked uh, difference. And, you know, we do have areas in our law that explicitly recognize that racist and stereotypical thinking about black men or black people in general is a real fact. It's acknowledged. One of the things, as you you pointed out, is that we're entitled to screen potential jurors explicitly for racial bias. We're entitled to say, do you hold beliefs that are biased about black people in crime? Because it is, it's recognized that it's so widespread. But for whatever reason, those kinds of arguments haven't been as effective when it comes to the evaluation of rap music in criminal courts. And some of that, I think, might boil down to the fact, uh, some of it, I wonder, is whether we're just not maybe making those arguments as effectively as we should, that maybe lawyers, uh, defense lawyers, we need to sort of get up to the now and and become aware of research, like the research that Adam and Ju Young are doing, so that we can use it more effectively in our cases. But some of it, too, I think, is that there's sort of a, an old school belief out there that when people are putting words and thoughts out into the world, they should be held to those words and thoughts. And, you know, there's um, 
law that talks about the fact that when people say things that are against their penal interest, so like things that could get them in trouble with the law, that those things have inflated probative value because people don't generally go around saying things that are against their penal interest because they might get in trouble. And so there's sort of a countervailing thought. And I think we do need to get with the times here and understand that in a real way, our clients are going to suffer from these kinds of racist stereotypes if we don't figure out a way to persuade judges that they are going to operate in the way that we know that they will if that makes any sense at all. So, I mean, I think it's great research to be doing. We need to do more of it, but we need to use it, which comes down to making sure if this is going to happen, you better have an expert. I think the the thing that I find most disturbing is that the music has a history of opening up our eyes to the plights of poor people while also being a ticket out of impoverished areas. This seems to me like the system is criminalizing an economic opportunity, is it not? Yeah, definitely. I mean... One thing that we always have to remember about hip-hop culture is that from its emergence in the Bronx, in the South Bronx in the late 70s, to its like kind of rise in South Central Los Angeles and Compton during the gangster rap heyday, to the spread of it into the South and across the globe, that it's always been seen by young, marginalized youth as a way that they can make it in the world, in particular in communities where there's been a depletion of good jobs, where schools are not very good, and where there are many other kinds of competing institutions that are attracting young people, namely gangs and street corner drug dealing crews. And so hip-hop has long been seen as a creative alternative to those pathways. And sometimes what it means to make it is that an artist has to present themselves as somebody who's authentically from that world, as somebody who knows people and as somebody who can carry themselves in that space. And so this discussion about criminalizing hip-hop is, in my opinion, as you mentioned, you know, penalizing young people who potentially could be trying to carve out a career away from gangs and the street life. And that's historically been hip-hop's role in these communities. Well, I, I, I agree with all of that. And I think from a legal perspective, we always have to look at the overall importance of the truth-seeking function of the trial. That's really what trials are here to do, is to get to the truth of the matter. And there's a way in which applying really simplistic thinking about using an art form in a, you know, as sort of a one-to-one mapping on truth is problematic, but it's, I think, doubly problematic when you look at doing that with rap music for all of the reasons that we've been discussing here. So, you know, I think I would, I would leave it at that, that we need to think about this nuanced issue really carefully if we want to make sure that trials are doing what they're supposed to do, which is getting to the truth at the end of the day. Adam? You could have the final word. Uh, yeah. So, no, I, I agree with, with everything that's been said. And I also think it's important to to think about what criminalizing rap music does in the sense of perpetuating stereotypes about young men who, who are already viewed as or potentially viewed as dangerous and criminal. And, it, and in doing so, that overshadows the the creativity that's part of rap, the complexity of rap. And so I think going forward, it's. It's really important with with experts and with defense attorneys, with everybody highlighting this idea that rap music is not only this source of entertainment that talks about violence and is commercialized, but also this source of, of self-expression and this really 
creative artistic endeavor. Adam Dunbar, Hilary Dudding, and Ju Young Lee, thanks so much for joining Canada Land. Thank you. Thank you. That's your Canada Land Show this week. I hope you enjoyed it. I'm Omar Moalem. You can email me at omar at canadalandshow.com. Our website is canadalandshow.com. Our crowdfunding site is patreon.com slash canadaland. We are on Twitter at canadaland, and you can follow me at omar underscore A-O-K. The Imposter drops a brand new episode this Wednesday, and Jesse will be back Thursday for Shortcuts. This episode of Canada Land was produced by Russell Gregg. Special thanks to Samantha Power and the great folks at CJSR FM 88 Radio in Edmonton who generously let us use their studios. And you can catch Canada Land on CJSR every Thursday at 11 a.m. Mountain Standard Time. If you like what we do, please support us. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada Land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.